The late environmentalist Aldo Leopold's impact on the conservation movement is indelible. But what he is mostly known for is the now classic Asan County Almanac, a collection of essays which tout Leopold's idea of a land ethic, or a responsible relationship existing between people and the land they inhabit. Welcome to The Sound of Ideas. I'm Jenny Hamill. Today, we'll talk about Leopold's legacy and philosophies and his impact on those working in conservation here in Northeast Ohio. Representatives from the Aldo Leopold Foundation, the Western Reserve Land Conservancy, the Cleveland Metro Park Zoo, and the Audubon Society of Greater Cleveland join us for this conversation. First, the news. It's the Sound of Ideas from Ideastream Public Media. I'm Jenny Hamill. Thanks so much for joining us. In the 1949 book, A Sand County Almanac, Aldo Leopold, known as the father of modern conservation, wrote, We abuse land because we regard it as a commodity belonging to us. When we see land as a community to which we belong, we may begin to use it with love and respect. Leopold popularized this philosophy called land ethics, which sees biodiversity and healthy ecosystems as essential to human survival. And Leopold's legacy has had an immense impact on many of the people and organizations that work in conversation, conservation right here in Northeast Ohio. Tonight at 6, the Western Reserve Land Conservancy will be hosting an event in Moreland Hills to celebrate the 75th anniversary of Leopold's book. The event is sold out, but there is a virtual way to watch the presentation live, which we will link to to today's show page. But we're going to spend today's show talking about Leopold's legacy, the conservation work happening in the region, and how we can all take better care of our surrounding environment. In fact, we're using this topic as an opportunity to launch a new monthly series we're calling Environmental Stewards, where we'll focus on positive environmental changes people can make in their own communities. Joining me to talk about Leopold's impact on modern conservation efforts, Rich Cochran, President and CEO of the Western Reserve Land Conservancy. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Also here is tonight's event speaker, Buddy Huffaker, Executive Director of the Aldo Leopold Foundation. Thanks for making the trip to the studio. Oh, great to be here, Jenny. Thanks for having me. Dr. Christopher Kuhar, Executive Director of the Cleveland Metro Park Zoo. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. And Harvey Webster, a trustee of the Audubon Society of Greater Cleveland and retired chief wildlife officer and ambassador emeritus of the Cleveland Museum of Natural History. Harvey, glad you could join us. Glad to be here, Jenny. All right. I always love a full studio. <laughs> we would love to hear your thoughts to our listeners on Aldo Leopold's legacy to you or questions about conservation in the region. You can call 866-578-0903 or 216-578-0903. You can email us at soi at ideastream.org, or you can always tweet us. We're at Sound of Ideas. So I know each of you has a story about when you first read a Sand County Almanac and what the impact was on you personally. So 
I'd love if you would share that as you answer our questions. But first, buddy, I'm going to turn to you. And can you share some information about Aldo Leopold's life and what led him to becoming one of our country's really first trained conservationists? Yeah, well, for those listeners who haven't read a Sand County Almanac, uh, that book is largely why we still talk about Aldo Leopold. It has been translated into 15 different languages. It really is one of the cornerstone pieces of literature for those that care about the natural world and our relationship to it. Uh, But you mentioned it was published in 1949. In fact, Aldo Leopold didn't see that book published. He died a uh, a year before its publication. So it was really a culmination of his life journey and at that point in time. And uh, he was one of our country's earliest professionally trained conservationists, went to the Yale School of Forestry. It was really the only school at that time where you could get a conservation degree. Went to work for the Forest Service, uh, started out in Arizona before it was even a state, uh, wow. a pretty wild place, and surveyed that landscape. And we're celebrating another important anniversary this year, the 100th anniversary of the Gila Wilderness Areas, the world's first ever designated wilderness area, 750,000 acres. As a result of a young forester, Aldo Leopold, uh, surveying and say, this is a really special place. It needs to be protected. And remind me where that is. That's in uh, outside of Silver City, New Mexico, southern New Mexico. And so, you know, he left his fingerprints on conservation in many different ways. There's a wilderness research center named after him, a sustainable agriculture center named after him. Uh, so he, he touched conservation in a lot of different ways, but it's mainly this articulation of a land ethic in his book of why his legacy is still so important today. And then hit on that ethos for us. You know, I mentioned it in, in, in the intro uh, about this relationship that we have with the environment around us and the fact that you know you have to see the you have to see the land and yourself as a part of one community yeah you used the perfect quote when we see land as a community to which we belong we may begin to use it with love and respect and that's really what he was asking western society to recognize is that we're a part of the natural world not apart from it and if we recognize that then we will begin to extend the same ethical care and consideration to the flora and fauna as we do our friends and family. And he really thought, you know, for us to solve any of the big environmental conservation challenges, we had to get the thinking right. We had to start with that we are part of this, and if we don't take care of it, we're not taking care of ourselves and our friends and family. So as I showed our guests, I have a copy of a Sand County Almanac uh, in my hand. It is uh, owned by producer Drew Mazius, who I believe read it on his way to New Mexico because he wanted to have kind of a greater respect for the area he was visiting. Um, It's something he likes to do. So uh, we have it right here. Now, Rich, I'm told you got into conservation because you were told to read this book in high school. So you're what, 15, 16, 17? How did it hit you and what did you garner from it? Yeah, it it was an amazing thing in my life. I was probably going into my junior year of high school, and they assigned this as summer reading, which, of course, nobody ever does their summer reading. What is that? Right. But I happened to read that one book probably that entire summer, and it changed my life. It um, shaped my understanding of the world. It shaped my career. It shaped the entire strategy and philosophy of Western Reserve Land Conservancy. So it, it shaped the, the theory we have around urban reforestation here in Cleveland. It's a very powerful book, and 
uh, Leopold was not only a luminary, but kind of like a sage, kind of like a savant in many ways. And I'm curious for a teenager, I mean, what about the book, I mean, resonated with you? Was there a simplicity in its writing? Was there just tenets of it that you said, this makes sense? Yeah, I mean, he's so down to earth about it, but it's also so sophisticated. And so I think I've read it, I don't know, maybe a hundred times. Wow. Um, and so every time you read it, you bring a little more wisdom to it yourself and you get more out of it. But even as a high schooler, um, I was into backpacking anyway, so it spoke to me in that way. But his storytelling and teaching through story was, I think, very powerful for me. So would it be fair to say it's kind of like a Bible for an outdoors person or someone who cares about the earth? It's absolutely a Bible for that. Amen. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. Okay, Harvey, as a wildlife expert that many know and love, um, how influential was Leopold to you having written the first textbook, textbook ever on wildlife ecology, which is a different book than what we're talking about? He, his, he did write the first um, book on wildlife management called Game Management and really set the standard for wildlife management. But um, I first ran into him uh, as an assignment at my freshman year at Cornell. I was taking wow. Conservation 101, and we were assigned this book. And I had been a museum brat. As a kid, I'd grown up around the Cleveland Museum of Natural History. And when you're in a museum, you come face-to-face -face with extinction mm -hmm. by definition. You know, you see things, creatures from the past that are no longer with us. And you know, many of them are things like dinosaurs, and, and there's a, a really long period of time between their enterprise and our enterprise. But there was an exhibit that had a brace of passenger pigeons, these beautifully taxidermed birds that look like morning doves on steroids. Wow. And that looked like they could have been alive yesterday, but they actually had been collected 150 years before, and the species is now extinct in the wild. And I was just blown away by that and that whole feeling coming in the late 60s about the diminishing of nature, about the impoverishment of nature seeing around us, the forces that ultimately would lead towards the Endangered Species Act and, and all of this other legislation that came out of the early 70s to protect wildlife. And when I picked up a Sand Colony Almanac and read it, I mean, not only is it poetry in terms of it takes you through the seasons of the year and it's a, a wonderful exercise in phonology, the observation of seasonal phenomena. Mm. It just has a beautiful way of describing these things. But as Rich said, his, his insights are just so powerful, seemingly so simple, but connecting us. You know, ever since Darwin, we learned that we are connected to the rest of the world. We are part and parcel of the biota of this planet and that we can't operate our lives independent of the biosphere we live in. And he articulated that. It was the first time I'd seen that, and it just blew me away and, and kind of helped inform the rest of my career as I returned to the Cleveland Museum of Natural History. So, Chris, we're going to round out with you. As someone who works not just here in Northeast Ohio, but on conservation efforts in countries around the world, um, can you talk about what the idea of land ethics means to you personally and how it is interpreted globally beyond our country. Yeah, I think it's ironic because like everyone else, I encountered the book in in college, right? In undergrad and graduate school. But what's happened is over the years from an academic perspective, conservation biology has really become driven by the biological sciences, you know, accurately assessing populations and focusing on the biology. And the, and to, to everyone's point, the book is not about that. The book is about the, the, 
this com- combination of animals and habitat and, and their interactions with people and the importance of people. Every wildlife conservation program that the zoo engages in is really a people program. Everything that we do is supporting people and their environmental livelihood, their economic livelihood, because those things are so much more obviously connected when you're talking about supporting communities that live adjacent to mountain gorillas or lions, sure. right? It's, it's very obvious there. So it's much easier to have those conversations around the importance of conserving land and the importance of the coexistence between people and animals and habitat. Unfortunately, zoos have been sort of framed as wildlife conservation organizations, and that's absolutely what we are, but it's more than that because everything we do is about people and how how people interact with wildlife. Right. And that's really the essence of San Connie Almanac is the importance of not only habitat, but animals and people and how everything's interdependent. And that's what we do. We haven't done a good job communicating about what that means, not only for people in Africa and Asia and Latin America, but for people here in Northeast Ohio, because all of those lessons still apply. If you'd like to participate in the conversation or have a question, 216-578-0903 or 866-578-0903, or you can email us at soi at ideastream.org. I noticed you had your finger up. What would you like to say? Yeah, I wanted to riff off of Chris and this concept of people and natural resources and how we all think of a zoo as about wildlife. We all think about conservation as about trees or lions or whatever. But really, it's 100% about people because if we didn't have people, there would be no zoos. There would be no conservation. There would be no need for it. Land would take care of itself and water and air perfectly well. Um, But because we introduced this incredibly powerful species into the world, some somehow through evolution, we impact the environment in ways that are, are horrible for us, for our human health, and for the health of all living things. So what we've had to do is create these new sciences and these new practices just to accommodate for our own impact. Right. It's a fascinating thing. And Leopold was, of course, at the forefront of this, defining how it is all interconnected, as everybody I think has alluded to, and how if we don't learn how to do this, it's actually at our own cost. It's not at the cost of other living things. They're going to be just fine, actually, is what we've learned. It's human health is what actually suffers, the health of the communities, the health of the individuals. And that's what's happened in a place like the city of Cleveland. We allowed environmental conditions to deteriorate to a point where human health outcomes have been dramatically impacted. We have 25-year life expectancy difference between Glenville and Shaker Heights, right next to it almost, because of environmental conditions primarily. A lot of other factors, too. But environmental conditions govern all of our human health outcomes, all of the outcomes of all living things, actually. And and, and I'm glad you brought up that point. Uh, I think we will hit on it more uh, later in the show. Um, you know, the talk, you know, in our conversation about conservation and how we interact with, with nature, uh, making sure that all members of our community um, kind of achieve that equity and same level of um, kind of health prosperity. Um, through it all. Let's take a call from Aaron in Shaker Heights who wants to participate in the, in the conversation. Aaron, thanks for calling. Hi, thank you for having me. Um, uh, I just kind of wanted to hear y'all's take on how individually we could take efforts for conservation where, um, you know, through the uh, state or national state government kind of, you know, de-emphasize that in recent years. 
All right. Great question from Aaron in Shaker Heights. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about, uh, you know, the individual versus government waiting on the government to take action. And and maybe with that not happening at the rate that certain individuals want to, what can they do? Yeah, let's uh, go ahead and hear from, um, excuse me, Dr. Christopher Kuhar from the Cleveland Metro Park Zoo. (laughs) Chris, Uh, go ahead. I'll answer that one way. Vote. I think it's critically important that as a citizen, you not only register to vote, but you participate. You are a frequent voter. When when politicians are looking at setting their platform, when they're running their campaigns, they really only pay attention to the opinions of frequent voters because that's who's going to decide whether they get elected or reelected. So participating in the political process, not just about environmental issues, but about all issues, right? Getting out and voting on local elections and, and, and primaries and all of that is critically important because when you do that, now they're going to pay attention to how you think about environmental issues. Those things play in more. And if you're not voting, they don't they don't really care and, and nor should they. Do you think uh, the fracking situation in our state is kind of an example of that, of, of how the state legislators in our state have been voting or not um, on that particular topic as, as something that the citizens can have a control over? Yeah, I don't, I don't know about that particular issue, but I'll say that when you look at all voters, there's research out there that suggests that the environment is much higher when you look at all voters compared to when you look at frequent voters, right? So so environmental issues tend to fall further down the, the right. priority list when you're not a frequent voter, right? So the, I think that the, the public probably has a greater opinion about environmental issues, whether it's fracking, whether it's water quality, whether it's flooding in your neighborhood, right? Sure. Those are all environmental issues. So by participating in the process, I think your voice is going to be more readily heard. And I think that's critically important. Yeah, and Harvey, I'd love to hear from you as well about you know the individual action that can be taken. Well, you know what? I think that we're all called to do what we can where we are and with what we have. So the other thing about that is, you know, I definitely encourage folks to vote, but also look at your place, the where you live. You know, that it's interesting. There's one place that you have total control over that you don't have to listen or worry about legislators or policy wonks or anyone else. That's your yard. And so many of us have got yards that are, you know, all of this monoculture of grass. Well, what are you doing to take your little part of the world and making it friendly for the, the, thing, the, the creatures, the plants, and the biota that belong here? And you, you can actually take immediate action. One of the programs that we're launching at the Audubon Society of Greater Cleveland is called Nature in My Backyard, where volunteer teams can come to you and help you advise you on getting rid of invasive species, planting trees. You know, to Rich's point, you know, that we the forest city has got a pretty impoverished canopy and there's a direct link between human health and the presence of trees. And so what do what is the individual doing? So I would encourage Aaron and others to take a look at your backyard. And then you might not think, well what what good does that do? But it's like a vote in a democracy. Sure. You know, your one vote might not seem like much, but number one, it's your right, and I would say it's your obligation, and collectively it can change the world. Well, you know, if you and all of your neighbors are now turning your yards into you know dynamic um, biodiverse habitats, that actually creates corridors that's going to link up to a metro park or link up to one of Rich's natural areas or conservation areas, and now you've got a broad framework that um, wild things can actually thrive. 
Buddy, with the Aldo Leopold Foundation, I'd love to hear you weigh in on the idea of individual action. Yeah, well, again, uh, ditto what we've already heard. And I think also just reminding folks there are so many ways to to take positive actions, uh, voting for sure. Uh, most importantly, run for public office, whether that's state legislature, city council, town board, uh, you know, get involved uh, to the extent you can. Uh, no action is too small. A pollinator garden in the corner of your yard or a window box does make a difference. Um, and a lot of what you'll read in a Sand County Almanac is Leopold really challenging and questioning kind of consumerism and that we're going to buy our way to happiness. And so, you know, the old phrase of buy less, buy local, buy certified, you know, be thoughtful about where you're investing your own time and treasure. Uh, and then I think the other part we always are uh, uh, encouraging is reflection. So when you do these things, that what's really important is you allow the opportunity for positive feedback. And so when you take a small step, you pause, you, you kind of connect your values with that action, and then you'll be empowered to do that again and again. And Rich, I'm going to let you uh, end this thread. I mean, what would you say for our listeners out there about how they can act now consistently and not feel like, um, you know, there's a paralysis when it comes to uh, making the environment a better place? Yeah, I would echo what the other three said. The two simplest things are vote and plant a tree or plant lots of trees would even be better. Um, that has an amazing impact, both of those things, on the entire community, not just, as Harvey said, not just your own yard. Um, and we've learned that if we can just literally reforest our cities and our suburbs, we will dramatically increase the, the value of everything, health, crime, everything gets better in the presence of trees. Uh, Keith is calling in from Independence this morning. Keith, good morning. Good morning. Go ahead. Thank you for taking the call. Uh, yeah, I understand that voting is very important, but what are we supposed to do in the face of legislatures that don't listen to their constituencies? We've got a uh, Congress and state right now that is actively going against the voters' will on several issues. All right. So Keith brings up a point. You know, what what if uh, government, uh, what if elected officials don't act in in in, in um, the you know in representing their uh, uh, voters or electorate. Yeah, I'll, I'll go first. First of all, I'll tie back to Leopold for a second. Leopold was obsessed with the concept of harmony, and he had a really sophisticated view of the concept of harmony. Harmony is not always about hugs and kisses. Harmony sometimes is about a fox killing a mouse, and all of these incredible cycles and the cyclical nature of harmony. Um, and sometimes it's violent, and sometimes it's sunshine, and it's everything in between. Um, I think that's how the political process is, too. You have to keep doing it. It's ne it's a never-ending process. It's cyclical. It'll come around um, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat. One nice thing is almost everybody loves conservation and natural resources, and we just need to continually push that message. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if Leopold was a Republican, um, by the way. Hmm. I have do you know if he was, buddy? We we actually don't know, but but he certainly would have been an independent voter yeah. and worked very hard to make sure conservation was not politicized uh, and helped set up some early processes in Wisconsin's Department of Conservation to insulate it from politics. We've we've unfortunately lost some of that, but um, he he probably was on the conservative side. Yeah. 
I'll turn it back to you guys. All right, let's take a quick break. And on the other side of that short break, we will return our conversation about the legacy of Aldo Leopold and his ideas of land ethics and his philosophy of having kind of a relationship with humans and our environment. I'm Jenny Hamill. This is The Sound of Ideas. We'll be right back. This is The Sound of Ideas. I'm Jenny Hamill. Thanks so much for staying with us. We are spending the hour talking about conservationist Aldo Leopold, known as the father of modern conservation, and his book, A Sand County Almanac. We have a great panel with us today. Rich Cochran, president and CEO of the Western Reserve Land Conservancy. Buddy Huffaker, executive director of the Aldo Leopold Foundation. Chris Kuhar, executive director of the Cleveland Metro Park Zoo. And Harvey Webster, trustee of the Audubon Society of Greater Cleveland. We'd love to hear your thoughts on Aldo Leopold's legacy or questions about the environment and conservation. You can call us at 866-578-0903 or 216-578-0903. And, of course, you can email us at soi at ideastream.org. Now, I'm curious, buddy. I want to learn more about how Leopold put his principles of conservation into practice. I know that he worked on restoration and management of a 4,000-acre conservation area in Wisconsin. Yeah, great question, Jenny. It kind of follows up the conversation we were just having. You know, how do we keep this conservation ethic out in front of us that we're we're moving towards and then deal with current realities? And so how Leopold did that is he planted trees. Uh, His family first purchased 35 acres and then they would acquire more land over time. Uh, At the time of his death, he had about 300 acres. The foundation now helps manage 4,000 acres. But what did Leopold do with his family? They would come out every spring and plant 3,000 pine trees. Mm. And it was in the 1930s in the face of the, the drought and the Dust Bowl era. So the first three years, every tree that they planted died. What'd they do the next year? Come back out and plant more trees and plant more trees. And then finally they all started to grow. Uh, but so he was a he was the founder of modern wildlife ecology. He was doing research, but on his own time and on his own dime, uh, he was finding places where he could plant pine trees, hardwoods, prairie, and try to take a place back to health. So that's what he did. And, and, you know, just as we talked in your own yard or volunteer uh, with Western Reserve and get out and plant a tree because that's how it all gets started. And Rich, would you say that was a novel idea of, of kind of seeing an area as protected and doing what you can to preserve, um, you know, kind of the glory of that nature um, and maybe spawning, you know, what we know now as the national parks? Yeah, it, was a no- it wasn't a novel idea necessarily in the context of national parks. It was a novel idea in the context of private action, restoration, and mm. conservation, which is really how you ultimately get to scale in terms of building the community that Leopold uh, wrote about and how you have that interconnected nature. So I, I mentioned earlier it shaped the Land Conservancy's philosophy and strategies. But, but basically when we read that book and applied it to our daily work, we realized you have to create this massive network of interconnected natural endowments, basically. And you can't do that through all public land ownership. You have to do it through a combination of private and public action. And he was the pioneer there, at least in America. 
Right? Yeah, just to follow up on Rich's point, I mean, remember, he worked for the Forest Service. He was kind of part of that movement that created the National Forests and National Parks. But he was inspired to write a San County Almanac, to Rich's point, because he recognized that government and public parks weren't going to do it alone. It was going to take all of us. And so that book is really written for a popular audience, a kind of non-technical audience, to try to invite everybody to be part of the solution. So it's really kind of a, a guidebook for your everyday citizen who's living in maybe the suburbs or the city or whatnot. Well, there are passages in there where he says you can get the same out of a, a, an abandoned city lot as you can from a wilderness area. And, yeah, really what he is inviting people to do is to go on a walk with him and then look, identify the birds and the bees and the trees and the leaves and as you come to know it, he believes you'll start to, to care about it and then care for it. And so it's really taking the reader on this journey, kind of welcoming you in uh, with you, this kind of naturalist guide, as you mentioned, to, to kind of help you find your way and realize, you know, what's important to you, because uh, it's going to be a little different for all of us. And then if you care, that's really what he was trying to get you to is to care about these things. And then he kind of entrusted in everybody that eventually things would fall into place. All right. Let's talk about, uh, you know, the elephant in the room, and that is climate change. And, you know, we're talking about the fact that, you know, climate scientists are saying we're already there when, with the threshold of global warming. And, and, and we worry about governments having action or inaction. Uh, we got an email from John who said, as conservation is a long-term goal, could your panel speak to how planning for future climate scenarios affect conservation efforts today? So do you think that just has to be a part of the calculus is, um, you know, acknowledging climate change and how we practice conservation efforts now, Harvey? Well, I think that we uh, we should be certainly doing our best to try and mitigate climate change as much as we possibly can. But, you know, I mean, when you read Leopold and you see lots of evidence of resilience in nature, you know, Mother Nature is extraordinarily resilient, given enough time to be able to adjust and adapt. Um, that's the nature of evolution itself. Um, but so I think from a strategy of, you know, certainly areas that are going to be heavily impacted by climate change, like coastal areas, you know, how do you plan for preserving biodiversity in those areas? In, in a greater thing that which struck me, and I think that, um, you know, Leopold was kind of on that bridge from a view of the commodification of nature to try and actually, you know, bring us into a, a, a sense of community. And we think of the world as such a huge place. But you think about the biosphere as the surface of the planet and the air and the waters and all that. But you know, it's only about 30 miles thick. And this is the, the zone of our planet that sustains all life. So it includes the atmosphere and the composition of the atmosphere and the oceans and all the rest of it. And so we think it can take anything. And the reality is it's it's not. I mean, it's resilient over long periods of time. As Rich alluded to, you know, we could become extinct. Nature will, will, will venture on. But just to recognize that this is a fragile planet we live on and recognizing our role in that. And if we are extracting, you know, carbon that was laid down over a million years or to a, a thing I just read recently, 
salt that's entombed beneath Lake Erie that we bring out and disperse on our highway. We take these things assuming that the planet can just absorb it. Right. And it can't. And that we just need to be aware of the science behind that and then support um, policies that help bring us back from the edge. And Chris, I know you're working on um, kind of how we can deal with climate change on a global level with other countries. Um, can you kind of tell me more about your work? Yeah, I think the our focus is on, you know, for, for our particular zoo, we're focused on being relevant to our local community, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's great to do wildlife conservation on elephants or Asian turtles, both species that have critical conservation needs. But again, those those efforts are really focused on people mm-hmm. and they may not have a relevancy to people who live here in Northeast Ohio. What does have relevancy to people living here in Northeast Ohio is what's happening with weather patterns, what's happening with the climate. And by the way, those same issues are affecting giraffe and rhinos and, and, and Andean bears, right? So trying to make those connections and trying to have conversations around that the fact that everything is interconnected, right? So everything that you do, I think that we do ourselves a disservice to talk about conservation outside of economy and outside of social systems, right? They're all interconnected until we start addressing those things more globally. I think we're we're, we're fighting an uphill battle. So what we're trying to do is really focus on what's the relevant environmental issues here. And a lot of those things come back to green infrastructure, jobs, education, right? So you're seeing a shift in our education and conservation programs to talk about those larger issues, not just about the thing that brings people out to the zoo, which is, you know, the the cute animals and the baby animals, but there are real environmental issues that affect both that baby animal and you at home. Great point. Buddy? Yeah, just I really love the conversation. If you read Leopold closely, you'll see he often uses the metaphor of human health for how we think about a healthy environment. And again, that was a mechanism to try to connect with the reader sure. who maybe didn't have as much ecological sophistication as he did. But so when we talk about climate change, uh, you know, it's the gorilla in the room, uh, but it that's really about triage and mitigation at this point uh, to, to try to minimize the overall collateral impact. But again, on the back end, we still have to be thinking about, okay, how do we rethink our relationship to each other in the natural world to come up with better long-term solutions? So, uh, you know, when we built the Leopold Center, for those of you that want to come dive deeper into Leopold and visit us in Wisconsin, uh, it's a green building. And, you know, when it opened, it was the greenest building in the world. And we were trying to just demonstrate what it would look like, uh, the land ethic would look like in the 21st century. And one of the things I really came to appreciate is the difference between first cost and full cost. And I think we're still trying to figure that out. To, uh, and this builds on what Chris was saying is how do we build an economy that really has our best interest in it uh, over the long haul, not the short term. And in, in the short term, you know, economic interest is divergent from ecological health, but in the long term, they are synonymous with one another. And we're, you know, we all share the same outcome. We all share the, out- <laughs> the same outcome. And so we're still, you know, as a species, we're still trying to figure that out and come to grips with that. Let's take a call from Morgan in Akron. Morgan, good morning. Hello. It's been an interesting conversation. And uh, to tell you the truth, I have so much to say, but I know so little time. Um, my. <laughs> Concern is is with the disappearance of 
farmland in the area. I live in a suburb of Akron, and uh, when we first moved here a little over 10 years ago, there were beautiful little uh, local farms, and slowly they're disappearing. And I think um, people don't realize that once it's, it's in what we call in the science world an irreversible process. Once you take these beautiful, pristine pieces of large land and chop them up into little bits for housing developments, that's it. I don't think you'll ever regain that beautiful farmland. So my question is, what do you think is uh, causing the disappearance of these uh, nice local farms in this area? Thank you so much for the call, Morgan. I'm going to let Rich with the Western Reserve Land Conservancy take that question. Thank you so much, Morgan, for your question. Uh, you're correct. Ohio's leads the nation as one of the leading states in the nation in loss of farmland metrics. We are also one of the leaders in the nation in amount of prime soil acreage that we have, prime soils being the soils that give rise to the best food and fiber production in the world, and they're very rare globally. Wow. We happen to have a relative abundance of prime soil acreage naturally. We started saying this many, many years ago, cement is always the last crop. So we have to try to preserve these prime soils before they become developed into some other use. They are like golden geese. They give and give and give. We've been talking, both Chris and Buddy, about economy and ecology. Notice they share the same root word. Um, They're the same thing. And farmland is perhaps the best example of that. It's truly the golden goose economically, culturally, historically, in every possible way. Also gives rise to human health through producing healthy food and fiber for us. So we've become the largest agricultural conservation organization in Ohio because we think this is one of the single most important things facing our state. Farming is one of the largest economic sectors still in Ohio, despite the farmland loss. And so we have to go in, and it's it's almost all done privately, by the way. Mm. In other words, the preservation does not make it public land for the most part. It keeps it in private hands, but it prevents that cement as the last crop scenario through legal means. Interesting. Okay, let's turn to a uh, topic that, uh, Harvey, you've hit on, you're the expert on. I want to talk about, well, so are you, Chris. Let's talk about the status of our biodiversity. The World Wildlife Fund says there's been an average 69% decrease in monitored wildlife populations since 1970. And a 2022 report found that land use change is still the most important driver of biodiversity loss. What's causing such a decline? Us. Yeah. You know, I just the, as our, our global footprint gets greater and greater, there's, you know, it's it's amazing the amount of mammalian biomass on the planet is mostly domestic mammals and humans. You know, wildlife is, you know, a, a few percentage points of that whole. So we are having a huge impact and we're sort of forcing wild things into smaller and smaller areas. And there's as, as E.O. Wilson showed us through the bio, island biogeography, that the smaller an area, the, sm- the fewer species they can harbor. And I think that, um, you know, uh, Leopold talks about to preserve every cog and wheel is the most important part of intelligent tinkering. In other words, if you're going to be messing with the environment, you better not lose any parts because if you allow things to become extinct, you're, you know, you're, that's another thread in the tapestry of life that is lost. And at some point, it's going to a- affect the integrity of the whole. And so it is a huge issue. And organizations like Chris's are doing amazing things worldwide to address this. But 
it once again comes back to our relationship to the world around us. If we're living in harmony with the land, are we leaving places? One of the greatest ideas that the biologist E.O. Wilson came up with is the half-earth proposal. Why don't we leave half of the earth for human activities and half of the earth for everything else. How generous. And, and, and as it, it sounds a little preposterous, but actually, you know, you could create big preserves, the boreal forests of, of the north, et cetera. But it, it's, maybe that's the kind of thinking. If you would take the philosophy of Leopold and then ramp it up planet-wide, that's the philosophy we, we have to approach. The whole idea of focusing on single species, you know, I've spent much of my career with raptors and, and bald eagles, and, you know, it, it's great to see the success that we brought them back, but at the same time we've seen, you know, a 28% decline, overall decline in the number of birds in the United States since 1970. So while we've been doing all of these great things and, and really putting a, a robust conservation program together in the United States, we're still seeing these, these uh, declines, particularly of organisms that transcend our borders, that migrate to the tropics, and they're hemispheric in, in their orientation. So um, it, it, it is very, very concerning. I think that you know, many would say that uh, the impoverishment, biological impoverishment of the planet is the thing that our descendants from future generations will be least likely to forgive us for. Wow. On that note, we're going to take our final break of the hour. And when we return, we will continue our conversation about the environment, conservation efforts, and the legacy of Aldo Leopold. I'm Jenny Hamill. This is The Sound of Ideas. We'll be right back. I'm Jenny Hamill. This is The Sound of Ideas. Thanks for staying with us as we talk about Aldo Leopold, known as the father of modern conservation, who wrote A Sand County Almanac. And there will be an event tonight that is honoring his his legacy and impact on our region. So I wanted to go ahead and uh, take another call from Kirsten in Shaker Heights, uh, an oncologist who has uh, studied forest resilience. Kirsten, good morning. Hi, good morning. Um, yeah, I studied forest resilience, especially in the realm of um, carbon sequestration and also biodiversity. And it can be really disheartening sometimes, I think, to hear about the biodiversity statistics in the world. Um, but at the same time, it's very encouraging to know that forests especially are incredibly resilient to us and to our disturbances and i like to think that even in the face of a mass extinction mass extinction that um nature will continue on and i was wondering how we can examine that through aldo leopold's lens as well um especially if he was planting forests in a dust bowl which is probably a very uh disheartening project as well yeah uh, aldo was definitely continuing on um, despite some failures when he was planting the tree. So, Kirsten, I appreciate uh, your question. Uh, Chris? Rich. Yeah. Rich, sorry. I'm going to let you take that, that yeah. <laughs> question. Sorry about that. No, thank you very much. Yeah, I think we talked a little bit about climate change earlier. Mm -hmm. And when, when you listen to climate scientists, they always talk about it's going to be hotter in some places, almost all. It's going to be drier in some places, and it's going to be wetter in some places. We're going to have more extremes. And we're already seeing that to some degree. Uh, here in Cleveland, where we are getting hotter and wetter, primarily. And I'm going to sound like a broken record here, but trees are the answer. It doesn't matter if it's getting hotter, getting drier, or getting wetter. Trees are actually the answer. And uh, Leopold, of course, knew this. I don't know if he 
um, consciously talked about it as much as he he obviously knew it based on his actions. Um, so what we really need to do, and I'm glad you're a forest ecologist, um, is plant more trees, make sure that all of our communities, especially communities with people in them, are served by those trees. That'll address all of these challenges. It's it's like a it's like a rising tide that lifts all boats kind and of And why are trees so important? Well, there are a lot of reasons why we think trees are important. If you believe in, in evolution, we are large primates. Chris, of course, is a PhD in primate biology, so I'm I'm treading on thin ice here, um, but we are large primates, and we evolved in trees. We lived in trees for millions of years. In fact, large primates still live in trees and in the presence of trees. And so a lot of us feel like this is how we evolved. We are hardwired literally to be in the presence of trees, and where we're not in the presence of trees, that creates unhealth. All right. I have a question. Um, you know, we're talking about trees and planting them and, and how they're great for the environment. Or if you have a, a yard that you want to plant, a, let's say a native tree, that is great, too. You know, we have a lot of people that live in our region who don't have the time or space to be thinking about growing trees. And unfortunately, the people who are working to survive probably have the least amount of trees around them. So then what do you say about that kind of stewardship of those who maybe do have the time and space to to grow a tree and where to grow those trees in order to kind of uplift the health of our entire community? Well, if if you own any land, obviously you can plant a tree there and you should. Um, For the people who live in distressed communities, economically distressed and environmentally distressed, primarily on the east side and the south side of Cleveland, but also some of the entering suburbs, the Cleveland Tree Coalition, the Cleveland Museum of Natural History, the Cleveland Metro Park Zoo, Holden Arboretum, many organizations have come together to form the Cleveland Tree Coalition with the county and the city and many other partners to make sure those communities can be reforested. There are tree giveaways. We are planting trees in those neighborhoods where people don't have the economic means to plant their own trees and care for their own trees. So we are realizing now that this is truly um, an essential aspect of community infrastructure, of human health infrastructure. So we're going to do it in those neighborhoods with the people who live there, regardless of if they have the means. And can you volunteer to help? You can absolutely volunteer to help. You can go to the Cleveland Tree Coalition or Western Reserve Land Conservancy. All right. Sounds good. Let's take an email from David. Uh, This is a Uh, A question that I think affects all of us. The part we can play is going out of our way to find ways to recycle. I have found that there are two places in East Central Ohio that recycle styrofoam and polyesterine. Am I saying that right? So far, I've taken one big minivan load full down there, but I'd love more cities to pool their resources and help recycle these forever chemicals, as he calls them. We just did a show yesterday about PFAS chemicals. Let's talk about recycling. How much does it help? Uh, where should we be focusing on? You know, we're in a Amazon era where we got so many boxes coming to doorsteps. Um, so where do we stand with recycling and how effective is it? Does anyone want to take that question? Oh, <laughs> have I stooped the panel? Well, I, so I, I'll, I'll just I'll jump in here. Um, I don't know that you have a recycling expert on this panel. Right, but, right. So I would say that there are certain things that are much more recyclable than others, right? cardboard, your Amazon box, that that paperboard is much more recyclable. Keep it dry. Yeah. I I think the other thing is that recycling is obviously a a big part of this, but it's also considering what the production side of that is. So what are you you purchasing? Going back to Leopold's take on consumerism, what are you purchasing that requires that thing? And this ties into a couple other things that we've talked about, this idea of One Health. Where are the farms going? Well, a, a big part of this is where your food's coming from, what are you eating, right? And I say this as an omnivore, but you know, meat 
meat production, the use of commercial farms is a major environmental impact factor, right? So focusing Some 30% on- Some 30% of our gas emissions is what I, I read recently. Yes, it's, it's huge, right? And so again, I say this as an omnivore who's trying to reduce the amount of meat that I consume, but making these decisions and supporting local farmers, right? If you don't want those farms to disappear and become subdivisions, they're selling that land because it's not economically beneficial for them. Kids, it's hard to find kids who want to be farmers because it's not economically feasible. That's where we talk about all of these interconnections. So there is a recycling side to it, obviously, but there's also a production side and how you think about your food and how you think about your consumerism as well. Yeah. Just to add on to that, because I'm not a recycling expert, but, you know, we we have some flawed economics right now in the whole recycling system. And again, again, back to this first, first full cost. Things are cheap on the front end, but we have to build an economic system that recognizes and and changes that equation a little bit. And I also wanted to add, you know, uh, uh, Kirsten, when she called in earlier, uh, her her comment reminded me of another one of Leopold's great quotes. Uh, One of the penalties of having an ecological education is to live in a world of wounds. And that's when you can see how unhealthy your surrounding environment is, how, how, you know, the concept of eco-grief. Uh, has been emerging as a as a mm. real phenomenon. But on the positive side, uh, we have some of the biggest public investment that has our our generation has ever seen coming through the IRA and bill legislation and for tree revegetation, planting, conservation work in urban areas across the landscape. So uh, hopefully we can begin to see uh, some real investments taking shape. And that's going to take participation in all sorts of ways for people to come out to help get things done on the ground and get involved. But there, there is a wave coming here, uh, which should be exciting to see what can happen as a result of it. And, and, and Buddy, we have 20 seconds for this. How would Leopold tell our, our listeners to be good environmental stewards? Well, one is just get out and look around. And, you know, the first thing is to be aware of nature. And it all starts from there. We got an email from Martha, I think, made a great point. The biggest challenge is overcoming our culture of despair. There is always something we can do. It's not reclaiming all the lost farms, but we can do things. So I want to thank our guests for participating in this conversation. I'm excited about your event tonight. Um, Rich Cochran, president and CEO of the Western Reserve Land Conservancy, Buddy Huffaker, Executive Director of the Aldo Leopold Foundation, Dr. Chris Kuhar, Executive Director of Cleveland Metro Park Zoo, and of course, Harvey Webster, Trustee of the Audubon Society of Greater Cleveland, Retired Chief Wildlife Officer and Ambassador Emeritus at Cleveland Museum of Natural History. I want to thank you all for participating in this great conversation. Thank you. Thank you. And Buddy wanted me to let our listeners know, if you want to get a copy of a Sand County Almanac to celebrate its 75th anniversary, you can go to the Aldo Leopold Foundation website and get the book for only $7.50. So if you're interested in reading it, now's the time. And also we have a link to the virtual registration for tonight's event on our show page so you can check that out too.
Now, to get the last word on today's topic, send an email to soi at ideastream.org. We're on Twitter now, X at Sound of Ideas. You can follow me at Jenny Hamill underscore. Tomorrow on the Sound of Ideas, we're going to be looking at the death penalty in Ohio. There hasn't been an execution in the state since 2018 before Governor DeWine took office, but a new bill introduced in the legislature aims to change that by adding an alternative execution method. If you missed any portion of today's program, find us online or listen to the Sound of Ideas podcast. You can hear a rebroadcast tonight at 9 on 89.7 WKSU. I'm Jenny Hamill. Thanks for listening. I'll speak with you again tomorrow.